This is Tech Refactored. I'm one of your regular guest hosts, Elspeth Magilton, the Executive Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. The episode you're about to hear is being hosted by two of our student fellows. Our fellows are a diverse and interdisciplinary group, representing colleges and specializations across the university. The goal of the Student Fellows Initiative is to familiarize students with the nuances of working with professionals from other academic backgrounds, incorporating their perspectives and vocabularies in order to better inform their own work. This semester, we challenged them to produce an episode of Tech Refactored on a subject of their choosing. We hope you enjoy this special episode of Tech Refactored, hosted and produced by our Student Fellows, Morgan and Mitchell. Today, we're joined by Dr. Casey Hinmer. Casey was born and raised in Australia, where he completed undergraduate studies in mathematics and physics. Emigrating to the United States in 2010, he earned a PhD in theoretical physics, followed by stints at Hyperloop One and NASA JPL. In 2021, he founded Terraform Industries to capture atmospheric carbon and convert it into cheaper natural gas at gigaton scale. We're also joined by Laura Cummings. Laura is a Colorado native and University of Colorado graduate with degrees in astronomy and international affairs. After transplanting to the East Coast, Laura earned her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. Today, Laura is the Regulatory Affairs Counsel for AstroScale US, supporting policy advocacy and overseeing licensing of AstroScale's upcoming geostationary servicing satellite, Lexi. Laura and Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's an honor. So today we're here to talk about how the regulation of low Earth orbit uh, intersects with um, engineering and the things that we as a society have kind of coming down the pipe in the next couple of years. So before we hop into it, we'd like to know a little bit more about how you personally came to be involved in the space. So Laura, what drew you to going into space law? Yeah, so just thanks again. Thanks for having me. Um, So I guess like a lot of undergraduate graduates, um, I got out of school and realized I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I did know three main things. The first was that I had a mind and kind of a skill set for crafting organizational structures. The second was that I had a pretty good technical understanding of space due to my astronomy degree. And the third was that I wanted to keep going with some type of international scoped work because that's just really fascinating. Um, And so having said that, I got out a couple months, no idea what I wanted to do. And then at one point, somebody said space law and it stuck. And I was really excited about space law because I think it's a very unique profession, um, a once in a lifetime profession that offers a chance to build structures for the future And if we build them well now, we can go further, faster, and we don't have to undo them later. That's awesome. And a little bit of a Captain Marvel quote in there. So I also like that. (laughs) Casey, I couldn't couldn't help myself. But as an engineer, I had to ask, would you describe yourself as a physicist or an engineer? I think I'm a bit of both. I'm, I'm qualified as an engineer and I'm not, uh, sorry, I'm qualified as a physicist and I'm not certified as an engineer. Um, But I should add that I'm only here to represent um, my own lousy opinions uh, and certainly not those of any former employees, including JPL, who has their own specialists and uh, space communication stuff. 
a good caveat. Um, how did you wind up work? What, what, what made you decide theoretical astrophysics is what your, uh, your doctorate was in. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. How'd you end up doing that? Um, How'd you get there? Yeah, I was interested in a lot of different things and I was admitted at, uh, at Caltech and basically encouraged to visit all the different laboratories. And that one was the one that seemed the most interesting to me at the time, um, which is the one that I did. Makes perfect sense. Do you enjoy it? Uh, theoretical astrophysics. Yeah, it was, it was a good run. Uh, when I was there, I was, um, doing it for about five years. And, um, and then I, I made the mistake of, of taking a, a tour that was offered at, at Caltech, uh, to go and check out what was going on at SpaceX, um, in nearby Hawthorne. Uh, and I went and that was about 2011 and we got to have a 45 minute Q and A with Elon and, and I was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. And, um, as an Australian, you know, Australia didn't really have a space program when I was younger. And, um, I always assumed it was something that happened to other people. And I suddenly realized that I was kind of in the middle of JPL and SpaceX and a bunch of other companies. And I was like, maybe I should work on that. But it's it's basically impossible until you've got um, a green card. And I didn't have one. So I had to keep my head down and graduate so I could have a hope of getting one. And then once I got one, I was able to go and work at JPL, which I did for almost four years. That's awesome. That's awesome. The, the true American dream, right? Um, exactly. So with that background in place, um, Let's 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 hop into this. Um, for the sake of those who might not know, uh, how does do, do would either of you claim to have a good definition for what Leo is? Because I believe uh, legally there is a specific boundary line, uh, and I don't know if that agrees with what it, a physicist would say. So I'm not, I'm gonna let the physicist go first. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say. Um, well. Low Earth orbit starts uh, above the Earth at the lowest orbit that you can sustain an orbit around the Earth without the atmosphere pulling you down, um, which is a couple of hundred kilometers. And then, and then it goes up to around a thousand kilometers, depending on who you ask. Uh, and roughly speaking, satellites that are in low Earth orbit will deorbit uh, due to atmospheric drag within you know, a couple of days to um, a millennium or so. Yeah, and that's um, about the same. I've I've seen kind of numbers all over the board for the same Leo starts essentially where you can maintain an orbit and then ends. Um, I've seen I pulled from NASA. Theirs was about two thousand kilometers or one thousand two hundred miles. For those people who use miles, that's the last time I will say miles in this whole conversation. Um, I've seen other ones that go up to like ten thousand kilometers, but that might be kind of high. Um, and if you get into it, some of the kind of regulatory structures, so we're talking spectrum or things like that, instead of using LEO or low Earth orbit, they'll actually refer to non-geostationary orbit and geostationary orbit. So NGSO and GSO. Um, and so they kind of combined a LEO and a, a mid-Earth orbit LEO into one um, and do it that way. But yeah, so around, we'll say around like, zero to 2,000 kilometers, or I guess 200 to 2,000 kilometers. So, so to go off of that, talking about this low Earth orbit, um, what's the importance of low Earth orbit? What, what happens in it? Um, why, are we, why are we even talking about it? Yeah, so today we use the low Earth orbit for a lot of things that actually impact um, our lives here on Earth. So one that people probably know from childhood is the International Space Station. So that orbits around 400 kilometers. And recently we've had the addition of the Chinese Space Station, and that's actually about 340 to 450 kilometers. 
Um, and so just a little bit closer to Earth there, you can protect humans a little bit more from the radiation that you may experience further out in orbit. Um, additionally, we have a bunch of weather satellites that are in LEO. You can image things um, by having essentially a satellite that will revisit one spot every about 90 minutes or so. So give you that quick revisit time. Um, and with the constellations like Starlink and OneWeb, we're actually starting to see low Earth orbit used for internet. And the benefit of that is because the orbit is so close to Earth, you have a really low latency with your internet. So you're approaching almost fiber-like capabilities from space. So you can connect a bunch of people without having to lay fiber around the world. That actually, I, I that that's... Uh, it- most people don't realize a vacuum is arguably the best uh, transmission medium for electronic signals that there is. So uh, it's it's quite economically well suited to that. Um, but that that opens up a, a great segue. Um, Casey, you you've written quite a bit. How how old is your blog at this point? Um, if you go into the depths of time, it dates back to the mid two thousand, like two thousand and four. Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, so so. Maybe a better question is, uh, when did you start kind of uh, digging into some of the, the misconceptions around uh, what we can, what, what society yeah. can expect from Leo? I think that started in like 2017 or 2018. Um, I'd written a lot about space stuff by that point already. Um, and I was just having these conversations over and over again on different topics. And I was like, I've got stuff to say here that I can't fit in a tweet. Um, and, and I also wanted to kind of promote a way of thinking about these questions that was a lot less kind of argumentative and a lot more kind of like, well, you know, this is a hard problem. This is why people argue about it. This is why we don't understand. This is what we don't know. And, uh, and kind of go from there. Um, so, you know, I started there and, and it turned out to be an unexpectedly rich goldmine of, uh, of uh, material to write blogs from. I think I've about 150,000 words at last count, something like that. Yeah. You, you turned it into a book, right? Am I remembering that? Yeah. The most recent book is, is kind of a collation of a lot of those blogs, um, wow. you know, editing and improved images and things like that. So I'll leave this as an open question, but for the sake of separating the fact from science fiction, um, well, how, how about one of the easy ones? Uh, space mining, right? Does that does that matter for Leo? Well, there's not much to mine in Leo. Um, potentially, you could you could do space mining on the moon or on asteroids or on Mars or something. Um, and I think if you were living on the moon or on Mars, it would make a lot of sense to uh, to do to do mining there to obtain materials locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the material. Um, but I think when people talk about space mining, they're saying, oh, well, you know, we should go out and grab an asteroid that's made of pure gold and then bring it back to Earth. And, uh, you know, the mass of the asteroid multiplied by how much gold is worth will be quadrillionaires. Um, but it kind of neglects a lot of things about, the, you know, the reason that gold is valuable is because it's scarce and it's actually really damn hard to go out to asteroids and grab them and bring them back to Earth. Um, and the last time anyone tried it, wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, I, I don't think that was deliberate, actually. But... Um, yeah, there's complexities involved there. Um, and so kind of the challenge is like for almost any material you can imagine, um, it's either not valuable enough uh, to justify going into space to getting it, uh, to get it, or there's the, the total volume that's required by humanity is so low that the total size of the market isn't big enough uh, to justify the effort, right? So there's like a handful of things out there that cost $100,000 a gram or something, but we're not surprised you to learn that we don't use very much of that. And so the total, you know, there's just not, not enough money in that, in that area. Um, because it turns out that the Earth is made of all the same stuff that all the asteroids are made of, because the Earth is formed out of asteroids that collided together a long time ago, and sometimes more recently. Um, and so for almost all these materials, uh, it's almost always easier just to kind of go and start turning over shovelfuls of dirt in the backyard 
um, and you find much the same stuff in much the same kind of concentrations that you would in asteroids. And it's right there, you know, under an atmosphere you can breathe and with a local labor market and local market that you can sell into and, you know, thousands of local suppliers that can provide machinery and equipment. So it's a, it's a tough problem because everyone wants to think of a really good reason to go to space, but I just don't think that that's the reason. So to go off of that, um, since space mining isn't necessarily a problem for low Earth orbit, what are some of the technical challenges and environmental challenges that are facing LEO? And uh, open this up to either of you. Yeah, I would say uh, kind of one of the biggest one and the one that springs to mind is really orbital debris. Um, especially after the recent ASAT test we've had and everything, there's really a proliferation of objects in low Earth orbit. Um, so even in the past five years, we've seen a drastic increase in the amount of active satellites on orbit. We actually have around 5,000 active satellites in low Earth orbit now. Um, and for the first time in history, the majority of those are commercial satellites. They're actually not government owned. Um, but then amongst all of that, you have about 6,000 tons of space debris. Um, so that's just kind of I that mass. Um, and of those, we can track about 24,500. That was a 2022 estimate from Leo Labs. Um, but there's still thousands more that are smaller than the size of a softball that we actually can't see. And so part of the problem is you have so many objects um, and then you have objects that you can't see. And so even if you have an active spacecraft that has maneuvering capabilities, there's a possibility that you won't even see the debris coming your way and that it can still disable your satellite. Um, and so just briefly circling back to the, okay, maybe we don't have mining in low Earth orbit, but one of the exciting possibilities now, because again, you have that 6,000 tons of electronics, mass, materials, metals in orbit, we're actually starting to see the business case for recycling in orbit. And so if you can get over the, the legal questions of going up and grabbing someone else's junk and have the technical capabilities to do that, there are companies that are developing the capacity to take those kind of materials that you have up there and recycle them into other materials. Um, and then you see a secondary market for those products. Like I think there's a an upcoming potential for there's a company that wants to take pure aluminum rods and somehow use that as an energy source. I have no idea how that works. Um, but if you have a lot of metals up there, you can have um, kind of a way to address the problem of orbital debris while also making that material useful. That is so cool. <laughs> I would just add to that that not all low Earth orbits are created equal with respect to orbital debris. Mm -hmm. So like uh, one of the major concerns with the Iridium constellation, for example, is that um, is that its orbit is about 800-something kilometres and it intersects with an existing field of debris from a Chinese anti-satellite test. And that's high up enough that those big bits are going to stay up there for a 1,000 years. But once you're down around the um, the where the uh, space station is around 400 kilometres, you, know, you have to be an exceptionally dense chunk of something big to stay up for more than a year. Um, and so the space station itself has to reboost constantly or it would it would fall back down. Uh, and you can even go lower than that. You can you know, the uh, the Europeans have flown a satellite down around 250 kilometers, uh, and that thing reorbited like a week after it ran out of gas. Um, and so I think what we'll see in the future is that um, is that regulatory regime will recognise that it's the potential long term costs of operating really large constellations at really low altitudes is much lower because if something goes wrong or machines break down or whatever, these things just kind of flutter and and then burn up within weeks instead of centuries. 
um, it's it's like every hundred kilometers further up is ten times longer to deorbit. Um, so, yeah. Just building quickly off of what Casey just said, we've actually seen companies that have responded to this logistics as well. Um, the primary example is SpaceX with their Constellation. They filed a modification to actually bring multiple shells that they were going to deploy of their satellites down about to around, uh, I think it's between 460 and 820 kilometers, because then even if they, for some reason, have a, a deorbit failure, just the natural drag of the atmosphere at that point will make it so that that debris doesn't stay in space for centuries or longer. It actually will deorbit in about, I believe, 10 to 20 years at 600 kilometers. Can I ask a follow-up question right. yeah. um, so that the listeners can understand what a satellite would go through if it's deorbiting in the atmosphere? What happens to that debris? Um, like if it's at a lower altitude? Gas turns into dust. It doesn't matter what altitude it's at. Um, mm -hmm. Sooner or later, it will run into the atmosphere at, at 25 times the speed of sound. And like the, the metal it's made of boils into gas. And sometimes sometimes little bits will survive to the surface. So every now and then like bits of space junk fall down and, and like land on some farmer's field. Um, sometimes like surprising pieces like you wouldn't expect. But, but generally speaking, they're, they're things that are made of materials that have very high melting points. And then the material itself the object itself is also very low density um, so that it would slow down at a higher altitude, if that makes any sense, rather than like bobbing down into lower atmosphere and then getting super, super hot and burning up really quickly. Um, so like sometimes tanks, uh, what are called CPVs, composite overwrap pressure vessels, which are like glorified scuba tanks, will, will land on the surface of the Earth. But it's, it's extremely unusual. Like this happens almost every day in China or Russia where they launch their rockets over land and the, the, the boosters come back down. Uh, and crash onto villages and things, but it's it's extremely unusual for orbital debris to be recovered on the surface of the Earth. It's like maybe you can count it on on on, all, on your hands, like ten times that's ever been ever been found, something like that. It's actually it's pretty unusual. Uh, and if you ever find it, of course, don't don't go and poke it with a stick. It might it might have hydrazine on board, but um, but uh, but yeah, you, you call a number and someone will come and collect it um, and and take it away. But it's yeah, it's it's almost like finding a meteorite in your backyard. It's very unusual. And that kind of really developed, I think, too, with the commercialization of low Earth orbit, where you have a lot of these commercial items that are re-entering um, in the policy sphere. I've heard that called design for demise. So essentially, yes, we want to make sure that everything will completely burn up when it's re-entering. So you don't land on someone. Well, I should add that the pieces that are coming down um, are, are falling at terminal velocity. Like, so the stuff that like falls down in some of farmers' fields, thing, it's, it's falling at, you know, it would really hurt if it hit you on the head, but it's not it's not coming down at like hypersonic velocities like a meteorite impact that creates a big crater. Um, there have been suggestions for like weapons of mass destruction that could use the space called, called rods from the gods. We have like a giant telephone pole made of tungsten that would come in at, at orbital velocity and make a big hole without using nuclear weapons. Um, but um, but yeah, so you know, if if like a, a little piece of a of a spacecraft or something flutters down in someone's backyard, it, you might even be able to like go out and catch it with a baseball mitt. Like it's it's not going all that quickly. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably get into this at some point later. But the question that comes to my mind is uh, uh, if something like that does occur, right, uh, uh, who who foots the bill? Um, I think that might matter more when we when uh, uh, nuclear fallout or, or components from satellites that are using nuclear energy um, come into the playing field. But that's that a, has happened. Uh, no, that has happened. There yeah. was a Russian Russian nuclear powered satellite uh, uh, deorbited over Canada and created a big mess. Um, and then. Actually, a bunch of Russian satellites, uh, Phobos Grunt, also deorbited, but at least that had the decency to come down in one piece and just like 
I think a chunk, big chunk of plutonium just ended up, on the, ended up on the bottom of the ocean somewhere, which is about as safe a place as you can imagine for it. It just kind of sinks into the murk and it's gone, uh, gone forever. But um, it can happen. Yeah. So uh, with, I, I think that's a that's an ideal segue uh, uh, because then the question becomes: Okay, so if all of these you know wild things have happened and are happening, um, just how crazy is this going to get? Um, so open question: um, What are you the most excited to see? coming up for the future of Low Earth Orbit in the next, let's say, five years? I can go because I'm really excited for this. <laughs> part of the space Good. law thing. Um, but essentially, so the last like 10 to 20 years have really been about commercializing launch so that now we can get a lot of stuff to space cheaper. And so you can have a lot more people sending things into space. But okay, so now we've done that. It's cheaper to put things in space what do you do with everything you've put in space? And so I think now the big question is essentially, yeah, what are you going to do with it? Like we're going to start seeing commercial space stations. Um, we're going to start seeing more internet constellations, recycling, servicing, everything you could possibly imagine because now we can get it up there. Um, and so that's really what I'm excited for is just to see kind of where ingenuity takes us. There's a yeah, to that I would, I would also add um, Starship promises the ability to deliver stupendous quantities of stuff to orbit. So Laura mentioned earlier that we have this legacy of about 6,000 tons of leftover debris floating around um, up there. And by floating around, it's it's moving way faster than the rifle bullet. Like you have to be in the right place at the right time to even see it. Um, but uh, Starship promises to launch a million tons a year. So that's like 6,000 tons in like the first four days of the year or something. It's, it's ridiculously, a ridiculously big number. Um, and most of that will be fuel and oxidizer uh, that will be used to refill starships so that they can launch again from low earth orbit and then go to the moon or go to mars or other places um and i think it's just it's incredibly transformative to have that capability uh for science uh, mostly but also for the ability to to transport meaningful numbers of regular humans into space so they can live and work on the moon as we do in antarctica um and yeah that's i mean we're kind of on the cusp there's a professor here at UNL who's been looking for an excuse to be the first university with a with a with a, a journalism college with a satellite in space, and it sounds like that's going to be pretty realistic here in the not so distant future. Maybe imaging, right? You know, maybe they can send tweets uh, via. You can, you can buy a kit for a CubeSat and launch it for less than a million dollars now. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly cheap. pocket money, but it's it's pretty cheap. Yeah. And if you have a bunch of law students, they can license it for you. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned, I mean, both of you have mentioned new technologies that are coming out. Um, like one of them was the demising of satellites. Um, are there any other new technologies that you haven't mentioned uh, that are upcoming or with these new technologies, what are some of the challenges that those might present to Leo that aren't there now? I mean, we're going to have to get really smart with traffic management. Um, but it's it's fundamentally not that hard a problem. I mean, they say, well, we could have 2,000 or 20,000 or 200,000 satellites in low Earth orbit. It seems like a large number. But there are 200,000 cars in my neighborhood, like in my, in my city. And mostly they don't run into each other. And yes, to be sure, they're bigger and they go more slowly on average than, than satellites do. But also their behavior is way less predictable. Like a satellite will always be pretty much close to where it's predicted to be. We can track its orbits extremely precisely. It also has GPS on board. Um, 
we just have to get like a little bit more sophisticated about it. Um, so yeah, like the situation right now is that you you kind of build a custom highway for every car to make sure they don't run into each other. And in the future, we're going to have to be a bit, a bit more clever about it. But it's it's completely within the bounds of of our current abilities. It doesn't doesn't require any science fiction to to make that work. You could have you could have um, hundreds of billions of satellites in in space before you before you start to worry about them running into one another because they're unable to find adequate room. Yeah, and I would just echo that really uh, kind of the traffic management is where we're going to need to improve. And you see uh, people taking steps towards that. Really, one of the underpinning technologies is just the ability to see what's in space. So anything we put up now, we can put essentially a GPS tag on it. But for all the debris, all the junk, potentially the old stuff that's in space and that's small, that doesn't already have that, we really need to improve our radars. Um, Leo Labs is doing a great job of ground-based radars. The 18th Space Squadron of the U.S. has traditionally hosted a lot of that information that they've been willing to share. Um, and we're also starting to see the rise of in-space imaging. So space-to-space space, trying to use that for space situational awareness. Um, and really, we just need to figure out a way that the world can get together and share that data so we can figure out where things are. Um, NOAA, specifically the Office of Space Commerce, has started doing that with their open architect architecture data repository they're taking over from the dod for doing that open ssa sharing um but really yeah just the just the ability to know where things are and then we can kind of set up the, the flight management system at a high level low earth orbit is governed by national regulations that are guided by international treaty obligations we'll be right back to discuss how regulation may change how we can operate in space I'm Paige Ross, a student fellow at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The student fellows at the center are drawn from across the University of Nebraska, including the colleges of law, business, engineering, and journalism and mass communications. In the program, we develop research projects focused on the intersection of society and technology, and working in multidisciplinary teams, think about how to communicate our work to the world. Some of this year's subjects include designing autonomous vehicles with drivers in mind, satellite congestion in low Earth orbit, and taking the politics out of online content moderation. We have some fun and network with fellow students and faculty, too. The program is open to graduate or law students at the University of Nebraska and welcomes students from all departments. Now, back to this episode of Tech Refactored. Now, that, now let, let's change gears and kind of talk about how regulation has played a part in your respective experience of, um, I would call it the, the space industry, which I think also extends both to academia and policy, but uh, the nexus that is space. Um, maybe the, the simplest question is, uh, based on your experiences, um, how do you perceive regulation of low Earth orbit? How have, how have you seen it be impactful? I mean, the, the Outer Space Treaty, amongst others, I think start start with the best of intentions, and um, and in particular, responsive um, regulation is, is super vital to ensure that that uh, we can kind of price risk and uncertainty in this in this field. However, um, it's worth kind of noticing that that the major kind of 
difficult to price externalities are due to irresponsible behavior from nation state level actors in space. And in terms of the nation states who have the ability to do stuff in space, uh, a good number of them have demonstrated that they will look the other way when it comes to regulations if they want to, for any reason, screw you, no questions asked. Um, and we're kind of seeing that right now um, with the lawlessness of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and, and you know, so I think, I think in future, you know, we have to, we have to be aware that um, our ability to enforce regulations um, on activities in low Earth orbit uh, strongly depends on particular, in particular, the United States and its allies' ability to be dominant, um, or at least a, a dominant player in that space. Um, it's, it's practically impossible, I think, to to do so if you were not able to set the agenda, if necessary, by force. And to just bring maybe, I want to say an, an optimistic scope to that, but kind of adding a little bit to the picture. Um, so the Outer Space Treaty, when it was set up in 1967, if you look at it, it's really a treaty of principles. So when I want regulations for my company, I want something to tell me what I can or cannot do. I'm looking for a pretty low level of granularity, like how, how fast can I go? Where can I fly? That's not going to be an Outer Space Treaty. And so we're seeing these nations try to build in the regulations underneath the Outer Space Treaty, whereas we already have the principles in space. Now let's kind of work to see the specifics under that. And you get these efforts from UN Copulus where they develop guidance that can then be strengthened to guide international practice. So specifically the long-term sustainability guidelines, the UN Copulus released these 21 guidelines that essentially are responsible behavior in outer space. States can voluntarily sign them and put them into practice. But because under the Outer Space Treaty, specifically Article 1, all the nations that are signatories have to act in outer space in accordance with international law. And so if you can figure out how to build international law, specifically start going towards best practices or customary international law, even though the Outer Space Treaty's principles, you start to fill in those regulations. And I think we're going to see that start to develop much more quickly, those kind of best practices, guidelines that will then get codified as we see a lot more commercial companies enter this space. And you have nations, especially the U.S., that wants to protect their commercial companies' investment in this realm. And so they're feeding pressure into that international scenario to figure out how we build the, the background to these lofty principles that we have. Um, so while there are bad actors that do things that we don't really have the ability to enforce right now, the hope is that we can kind of use different economic legal and peer pressure to get everybody to the same baseline. Well, just to kind of underscore that, I would say like right now, one of the major challenges is that potentially North Korea or China or Russia or anyone could go and shoot down a bunch of satellites. And that's actually one of the major concerns with kind of developing the ability to recycle and harvest um, space junk that might belong to some other potentially defunct nation state is that that's also actionable as anti-satellite technology. Um, that's a real challenge right now, but but if we're able to develop technology that is able to kind of mitigate the effects of, of uncontrolled orbital debris uh, as quickly as anyone can generate it, then that becomes a moot point. And we've we found a technological solution to a, a problem that was previously highly resistant to even international governance or, or legal strategies, um, just simply because, you know, like dumping toxic waste at sea, it's, it's an enforcement problem. Um, so um, 
that's kind of an interesting question, uh, Casey, that I just thought of based off of what you're saying. So are you trying, like, would your solution be to advocate a technical solution rather than trying to work within the bounds of the regulation that's there just based off of your background? Because you mentioned like trying to come up with a solution to clean up the space debris because people are using this technology. Um, it was just, it was an interesting point. Well, I think, I think what you generally find uh, in all kinds of regulations and all kinds of international law, um, you know, particularly within the West, is that, um, is that you, you kind of have the, the regulation and the, the regulatory revision process moves kind of hand in glove with the development of technology. And, and advocacy by on, on behalf of the uh, private organizations and government bodies that are developing this technology. And so it's not really a surprise to see that principle extend into space. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a great paper that uh, a professor in the, the law college here at UNL published basically talking about how, I believe he calls it a permissive innovation ecosystem um, and how that kind of like regulatory outlook, if you will, um, was able to give rise to the early internet, um, kind of just by regulating as necessary and being adaptive and reactive. Um, people could try stuff. Um, but obviously given its space, uh, there are some consequences if people break things. <laughs> well, the internet is a great, a great, a great example because, um, you know, even today we see that, that regulators all over the world are struggling to keep up with the internet one way or another. And we have to remember that even though it's 2022, we're still in the early days of the internet. We're still in the early days of space technology as well. Um, we don't, we don't have no idea what the final form of the internet will look like. Probably our grandchildren won't even find out. Um, but as an example, you can look at the, the EU's recent regulations and everyone has to click cookie, cookie related like permissions, right? So like, like that was regulation started with the best of intentions. Um, by the time it was finally enacted and enforced, it was completely irrelevant. Didn't solve any of the problems it sought to solve. It just creates more friction and more problems. And will it ever be repealed? Probably not. Um, there doesn't seem to be a process to to kind of fix regulations that have failed in that way. Um, we kind of see that across the board with with the internet. At least in the case of, of space, the, the kind of barriers to entry to really start causing mischief in space are way, way higher than they are on the internet. Like one of the great things about the internet really is that essentially anyone with a, access to a computer can put up a web page or, or, you know, start doing stuff on it, which is, I think, overall a great positive thing. Um, and in space, certainly the barriers are coming down, but they're still significantly high. Um, it's You have to... It'd be much easier, for example, to to go and salvage an old yacht and become a pirate uh, on the on the open seas uh, than than to start launching stuff into space and and causing mischief up there. So, in terms of regulatory uh, innovation, also something that we've seen just domestically to talk about is the Federal Aviation Administration. So they are in charge of launch and reentry licensing, and in 2020 they redid major part of the regulation. So this is 47 Code of Federal Regulations, CFR Part 450, streamlining of launch and reentry licensing. And what the FAA and what the FAA did when they went into this rulemaking is they really focused on making performance-based versus prescriptive regulations. And so where a prescriptive regulation would be, I want you to go 10 feet at two feet per second with this specific propulsion system. You can make one that's just says, I want you to go 10 feet. I don't really care how you do it. Just make sure that you're not violating this safety metric. And so now they've instituted a system where companies can come to them and show them how they can meet a, a safety metric or a specific requirement 
but use their own method of proof. And that ability to really govern performance rather than be prescriptive is one of the ways that you can allow technology to flourish and a lot of this innovation to happen while still ensuring that you maintain a level of, of safety across the so board. To, that is That's smart. smart. So is that something um, you think is a way that regulation works well because they sort of worked with the commercial industry to find out what their needs were to allow innovation to move forward, but to still kind of keep keep a lid on it in a way. Um, is that something that you would advocate regulation does going forward? Yeah, I would definitely say that a performance-based goal is a net positive. Um, there are a couple of downsides, for instance, in your kind of performance test, you can define it so narrowly that you almost re-enter a prescriptive regime. Um, and so that can be something to watch for. But then also the FAA did something interesting. They said, okay, when you bring us your methods to show us how you meet this requirement, um, if it's innovative, and I believe if you give them permission, they will publish it. And so companies can have the option of kind of just what the regulation says is what their baseline of how you can do this. They can innovate or they can follow what another company has done and it met the same requirement. And some of the first movers or the innovators have objected to that as a allowing those those later entrants to really benefit from whatever innovation in the R&D and that investment that those first movers did. And so you can see a little bit of tension there, but I believe overall it really does enable industry to be innovative and work with their regulators because the regulators don't want to be prescriptive anymore than the industry really wants them to be. Um, and so overall, I think having that flexibility and that device really helps everyone move forward together. Yeah, I think the FAA generally has a pretty good track record when it comes to this kind of responsive uh, regulation. Some might argue, um, particularly in the context of the 737 MAX certification, that they went a little far. Um, but it's certainly, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an essential thing that if you're in the business of, say, building planes or something, that, that you know that you can go and knock on the door of your local field service district office in the FAA, and they will they'll give you the time of day and they'll talk, sit you down and talk to you and, and be responsive to your, to your needs and asks. That's not always the case for other regulatory agencies and in other jurisdictions as well, um, which is a kind of something that we will, you know, space will continue to challenge with. Uh, we'll, sorry, will continue to be challenged by. Um, space development will continue to be challenged by. Yeah, that kind of that kind of opens the, the the room for yep. Um, segue right, perfect. Okay, so that kind of that opens because uh, uh, two of the areas that we haven't really dug that deep into, for example, are uh, the law that governs say um, telecoms in space. Right, we talked about how space based internet. Um, Casey's got a great blog post talking about how you know Starlink evolved as a, a solution uh, uh, that evolved out of a, a, a or a a solution which was seeking a problem, and that's how that's how that's how Starlink kind of was born initially. Um, but there's there's also uh, the whole aspect where we have these these international forces that may want to do what's beneficial for them, but how does that then play into the the wider um, international picture. And so, um, down the road, right. Ideally it would be nice that whoever is showing up in 10 to 20 years can come and make usage of a, a, a full ecosystem that is friendly, 
right? That people who want to come into the sector and innovate can still do so. Um, and most importantly, that, you know, we as a, a species don't kneecap ourselves on the way to the stars. And so this, what, I, what, I, what I think would be worth discussing is kind of how well does our current approach to regulation work? And then also, how, how, what are the impacts if we, if we don't get this right? I think is a, a good way to phrase it. So um, just to ask a question, how does the current regulatory framework you know, address some of the issues that we've discussed thus far? So I think um, one example, and I can tie in both both telecoms and kind of world order here, is actually the issue of market access. And so in the U.S., if I want to land commercial spectrum on a U.S. ground station in the U.S., I have to go to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and ask them for landing rights. Um, and for most satellites under Part 25, if I want to ask to land spectrum in the U.S., I have to do the majority of the showings that a normal U.S. applicant would have to do. And so one of the areas where we've been seeing this come to a head is actually orbital debris mitigation showings. So in the FCC Part 25, a normal applicant will have to give the FCC their orbital orbital debris mitigation plan and say, this is how I'm going to prevent debris. Here's all the things you've asked me for. For a a market access applicant, they either have to give them what they've asked for or show that they are regulated to the same level that the U.S. does. And so you see, and they're still kind of working out the, the kinks in that system. But essentially what you see is the U.S. there has brought to bear just their their market power of you need to land signal somewhere in the northern hemisphere, probably going to be the U.S., you're going to have to comply with my regulatory domestic policy. And so you can see that is one mechanism that specifically the, the larger or more uh, desirable markets have brought to bear to try to unify um, what would be required of the satellite operators. Do you see that? Yeah. So is that a barrier to entry? Is is that sort of a difficult thing or is that, do you see that as a beneficial thing on something like orbital debris mitigation? Like the U S is leading the way, or do you see that as more of a barrier of entry? Uh, I think depending on what country you are coming from, it can be taken either way. Um, But for my own personal opinion, I really think that it is a net positive. The U S has some of the most technical stringent showings in terms of orbital debris to put a satellite on orbit and communicate spectrum-wise. And because this is a field that so many people are paying attention to now and really realizing this is a problem, there is a lot of stuff in low Earth orbit. And if we don't take care of this environment, we're not going to be able to have these, these mega constellations we want. There is not going to be safety for our astronauts, things like that. And so if you can have somebody who's kind of, you know, driving the issue and has this sense of urgency rather than maybe an international fora that doesn't have the same kind of enforcement power, that same driving mechanism. I think it really does help the environment mature overall and make sure that everybody will be better off in the long run. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that um, just because SpaceX has succeeded in launching its first 2,000 or so Starlink satellites doesn't mean that every man and his dog 
is going to go and launch 2,000 satellites. It's a really hard thing to do. So like the next best contender for like the 1,000 plus size constellation is Amazon Kuiper. And they've just bought every launch that's available until their SEC license expires uh, to get half their constellation in orbit. And even then, it's going to be a really close run thing to see if they can do it. And there's half a dozen different things that could go wrong that would prevent them from doing it um, that don't just relate to whether or not their their launches will be ready. Um, and then, of course, there's OneWeb, but OneWeb is is uh, actually less than a 1,000 satellites. As a result, they have to be at somewhat higher altitude. So it'll be interesting to see how they deal with the uh, orbital, orbital debris mitigation problem. But um, long term, you know, that SpaceX just has an incredible advantage over all its competitors in this space, aside from the fact that it already has, you know, essentially warehouses full of some of the best engineers on Earth. Um, it, it also has the best launcher by an order of magnitude. So this has been an awesome conversation. Um, so I think Mitchell and I would like to wrap it up by asking both of you, um, what do you see as, you know, the future of low Earth orbit and sort of the future of space uh, with with what we've talked about here today and how do regulations play a part? What would you what would you like to close with? Well, I mean, the major challenge for uh, regulations um, for US space right now is actually in launch rather than in low Earth orbit. So I know that uh, SpaceX has struggled to kind of obtain the permits and so on it needs to uh, fully accelerate the production uh, and, and qualification of its Starship launch vehicle. And this is understandable because Starship is really huge and it's really hard to noisy and disruptive to launch a rocket from anywhere. Um, and, you know, our legal system does try and enshrine the rights of people and, and organizations and places and so on that would be affected by this. But the, the flip side of that is that the default option is that you get to launch out of the Air Force base, which means you have to play by all the Air Force's rules, some of which are arcane and you know obviously not necessarily in the interests of the private organization. And this is a real risk because I think SpaceX has shown that it's possible to build something like Starship and our geopolitical adversaries will be copying that exact process and they will not be slowed down by those same processes. They will not be slowed down by those same issues. Um, and so it may be that, that you know, United States is in the process of throwing away a five-year lead on this technology, uh, which is a real worry. Yeah, and kind of build off in, building off what Casey just mentioned about regulatory slowing down innovation. And then also what uh, I mentioned before is the reason I'm excited for space is we have things there, like let's do stuff with them now in space. But one of the problems you see, and specifically in the U.S., is a lack of mission authorization. So under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, any non-governmental activities in space still have to be um, have to have authorization and continuing supervision of their sovereign nation. So if I'm a commercial operator in the U.S., the U.S., the United States, is responsible for whatever I do in space. What that means is when you go to your different licensing agencies at this point, so FAA for launch, NOAA for imaging, FCC for spectrum, you kind of you want someone to be like, hey, yeah, this is an okay activity. You can do this. You need someone to sanction it because otherwise, if it's a, a novel technology, something they haven't seen before, those are going to go from that licensing agency to their interagency review process. And someone there is going to have a problem because it exposes the U.S. to liability for whatever that commercial operator wants to do. And at this moment in time, we have no overarching structure or entity that is in charge of making sure commercial operators can come with that innovative technology, go to one government entity that is identified and be like, please bless this mission. I want to do this. And that government entity can be like, yeah, this is cool. I will give you permission to do this. I will authorize and supervise this. Right now you kind of get that through FCC spectrum, but if you have something that isn't going to use that, or you don't want to go 
through the FCC for that permission because that's not really their wheelhouse. Um, there's no one that's identified to do that for you. And so I really think that for the future, so we can do exciting things and not have regulations slow down innovation, not have policymakers look at something innovative and be like, I don't know what to do with this. Um, you really need someone to give you mission authorization. And so that's what I see as really the next step. I love that. Well, this has been awesome. We have loved having the both of you. Thank you both. And thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. On Tech Refactored. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. It's been great. Thank you for joining our student fellows on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at NGTC or submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu or you can follow us on Twitter at unl underscore ngtc. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our show was produced by myself, Elspeth Magilton, and Lysandra Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, hang in there and keep learning.